Thanks for pressing play. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different, and we are an award-winning podcast, and some people call us an oddcast, for people who value real, different conversations about how to build a legendary business and a legendary life. On this episode, billionaire Tom Golisano. He's the founder of $30 billion market cap paychecks, and you're going to love this guy. He's got a new book out, a smoking new book uh, that I really enjoyed reading called Built Not Born, a self-made billionaire's no-nonsense guide for entrepreneurs. And we dig into the book. He shares his insights on a ton of stuff, including when and why you should build, uh, you should start a company, how to build a long-term successful business. And we uh, get a little bit personal. It turns out that Tom is married to tennis legend Monica Sellis, and she won eight Grand Slams, and at the age of 16, Monica became the youngest ever to win the French Open. So he tells us a little bit about that. We also talked philanthropy, investment strategy, and what Tom learned by owning and turning around NHL hockey team, the Buffalo Sabres. And when it came time for Tom to sell the team, why he sold them for $60 million less than he could have. Pay special attention to Tom's message for U.S. Senator Elizabeth Warren. Uh, As I'm sure you know, we are in an election season here in the United States, and um, Tom has some thoughts for her. This is a legendary episode. For more on Tom and his book, go to Lockhead, L-O-C-H-H-E-A-D.com, and check out the show notes for this episode. Now, what do companies like Ring, Hint, and Tecovis have in common? They all use my friend's at Oracle NetSuite to accelerate their growth. Successful companies, founders, entrepreneurs, and CEOs know that in order to grow fast, you must have the right tools. If you want to take your company from 2 million to 10 million or 10 million to hundreds of millions in revenue, NetSuite from Oracle gives you the tools to turbocharge your growth. With NetSuite, you'll get a full picture of your entire business, finance, inventory, HR, customers, and more. It's everything you need to grow all in one place, right from your phone or your computer. NetSuite will give you the visibility and the control that you need to make the right decisions and grow with confidence. As a matter of fact, NetSuite customers grow faster than the average S&P 500 company. And that's why NetSuite is the world's number one cloud business system trusted by more than 19,000 companies. And frankly, NetSuite is the last system you'll ever need. To schedule your free product tour right now and receive your free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits, visit netsuite.com slash different today. That's netsuite.com slash different because at NetSuite, business grows here. Now, I also want to tell you, the uh, famed management consulting firm McKinsey recently did a survey where they discovered that 92% of companies believe that their current business model will not be economically viable if their industry keeps digitizing at its current rate. That's why getting digital is now a top priority for CEOs and executive teams all around the world. And it also helps to explain why Splunk is one of the fastest growing enterprise technology companies in history. You see, Splunk is the leader in data to everything. And Splunk brings data to every question, decision, and action. Visit Splunk.com slash D2E, as in data to everything, and learn how you can turn data into doing. That's splunk.com slash D2E. I also want to tell you, 
We have a stunner coming up, a special two-part series with the real DEA narcos, Javier Pena and Steve Murphy. They actually flew out to California and spent some time with me. It was great getting to know them. These are two real American heroes. And if you loved uh, Netflix narcos, these are the real guys. They worked with Colombian law enforcement for six years to take down the world's first narco terrorist, Pablo Escobar. Narcos now has become one of the top shows ever in Netflix history. In our two-part series, first we get into the real story, stuff you didn't if uh, you didn't see on the show, and then we dig into their life and leadership lessons. Look, I'm just telling you, these guys are amazing, and this is as good as podcasting with people talking gets. <laughs> so I would encourage you to hit subscribe today uh, on whatever your favorite podcast player is for um, Folly or Different so that you don't miss this special two-part series coming up very soon. Now, hey-ho, let's go. Trying to help people make the decision whether or not to be an entrepreneur. The ramifications of it, the so-called risks, the so-called... Uh, hardship times that you're going to have and so on and so forth. That's where I started. And I am a, an encourager of entrepreneurs. And for example, in the book, I talk about sometimes it's riskier or many times it's riskier to work for somebody than it is to be your own entrepreneur. For example, if you work for a large company, you know, you could do very well as an employee, but your maybe your department head doesn't do so well and it reflects on you or the division of the company doesn't do well or even the company itself. And then all of a sudden you find yourself, the company sold, it's valued far less than uh, everybody thought it was going to be worth, etc. If you have your own company, you're sort of set aside from those kinds of risks. And the great thing about owning your own company is uh, sometimes you can sell it for value, or you can pass it on to an heir, a son or a daughter or some relative. Uh, there's so many advantages to being an entrepreneur over working for somebody. Now, a lot of people associate high degrees of risk being an entrepreneur. If your business concept is well thought out of and you're very well qualified to run your little company or your medium-sized company, whatever, then I think that's the best of both worlds. Well, and uh, I love that you have this sort of smaller business entrepreneurial mindset. You know, I lovingly refer to them as uh, small e-entrepreneurs um, as distinct from uh, living out here in the Silicon Valley area, what we refer to as big E entrepreneurs, the entrepreneurs who go and raise several hundred million dollars of venture capital and try to build the next Facebook or what have you. And so I love that that's sort of where you start because those small E entrepreneurs are the backbone of our economy. Mm -hmm. Well, exactly right. You know, Paychex has, as clients, 670,000 businesses in the United States of America that are clients. And the average size company that we process the payroll for has 15 employees. Did you say 670,000? Yes, that's how many clients Paychex uh, processes the payroll for. And the average size client has 15 employees. So you can see it's very endearing to me, the small business environment that we have in our country and the opportunities that it presents to our population. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the statistics and, you know, people like Brookings and others do, I think, really important research in this regard. But uh, if I'm remembering right, about 
50% of all of the um, uh, new patents created in the country come from small to medium-sized businesses. I've heard that too, yes. And we all know, with all due respect to you know GE and IBM and so forth, and I don't have the number off the top of my head, maybe you do, Tom, the, the vast majority of new job creation and new wealth creation comes from startups and smaller businesses. Exactly. And, you know, entrepreneurism doesn't necessarily mean you have to own the business. Because small companies have few employees, the more entrepreneurial attitudes or perspectives they have in their small company, the better. So even if you're an employee of a small company, it really does well to uh, be entrepreneurial. Yeah, I, you know, I've always felt the same way. And I, I, I think I understand what you're saying on the risk side, because I always thought like, if you're an employee of a company, you have to live in a world where, you know, depending on the size of the company, somewhere between three and maybe 16 or 20 people get together in a room, typically on a Monday, and make strategic decisions about your life. And if you're not in that room, that's a bad scenario for you. It's not the most comfortable feeling. I agree with you. (laughs) And so if you're trying to help encourage new entrepreneurs, you know, if you were selling me maybe, Tom, on entrepreneurship, what were the the things that you would say as to why I should uh, maybe not go work for somebody else and and, and swing swing hard at the puck in my own business? Well, let's assume, first of all, that you have a concept or an idea for an enterprise that has a chance to be successful. And one of the basic ingredients I think that's so important for an entrepreneur is to have industry knowledge. Uh, For example, if you want to say you wanted to be an entrepreneur because you eat dinner once a a night, that you're going to open a restaurant, that's not a good foundation for opening a business. Uh, My personal situation, Paychex, I sold accounting machines that did payroll applications first. And then I also worked for a company that did payroll processing for larger companies and sort of ignored the small end of the market or the lower end of the market. So I had a strong industry knowledge before I started Paychex, which, of course, was very important to my success. So anybody that's considering being an entrepreneur, the first thing I would ask is, what's your industry knowledge? Do you know enough about this industry you're getting into that you could absolutely make a difference? Or are you going to end up getting a very serious and costly education because you got into something you really didn't understand? Yeah, we, we see that a lot. And uh, I think in Silicon Valley, a lot of people talk about that as founder category or founder market fit. Mm-hmm. I think it's just very, very important. Uh, so other than encouraging people to be entrepreneurs and trying to make sure they uh, have a sufficient industry knowledge of the industry they're getting into, and then, of course, things like financing, sales management. Sales management, I think, is one of the biggest issues with entrepreneurs. You've heard entrepreneurs say, gee, I have a cash flow problem. Well, generally speaking, that cash flow problem is because you're not selling enough of your product. You're not making enough sales and you're not creating enough revenue. So you walk into a bank or a potential investor and you say you have a cash flow problem. Many times it's a sales problem. So sales practice and sales management is very, very important in any uh, entrepreneurial environment. And what would you advise me if I, maybe I was more of a technical founder or a kind of a product oriented inventor type founder, and that wasn't my natural skill set. What are the things that you think a non, a a person with, without sales background 
would need to know as a founder CEO? Well, first of all, as the founder, I would suggest heartedly that you start making sales calls yourself and learn as much as you can about the process. You're not going to be able to develop a good sales team unless you have that knowledge yourself. So you might as well dig right into it, start making sales presentations and sales calls. Then if you still don't think you're the right person to be doing it, at least you'll be in a position to train somebody that you hire to perform that function. So let me test this on you. I've long had this theory that I don't care if you're an engineer or an inventor or an artist or whatever sort of you view yourself as in the non-sales world. As a founder, you have to become the best salesperson in the company. And you have to figure out how to get those initial sales and understand what motivates uh, the customers and what resonates with them and what features and capabilities are going to really make this thing go, et cetera, et cetera. That there, you sort of have no choice. Frankly, I think it's a tremendous amount of fun and a lot to be learned when you're in the very early days engaging with those customers. And, and if you're a non-sales-oriented founder, I think you just have to decide this is going to be a core skill set. I've believed that for a long time. Uh, would you take it that far or how do you think about it? Chris, I wholeheartedly support what you just said. Uh, first of all, if you're uncomfortable with it, the more you do it, the more comfortable you will become. So you shouldn't be afraid of it. You've got to jump right in and get right into that sales process and make some early sales. What it will do for your confidence for not only yourself, but for the other employees you have in the company is significant and substantial. But I can't see anybody becoming an entrepreneur and being afraid of the sales process. They have to get into it. I couldn't agree more. Now, I'm also curious, you know, you have an interesting take on sort of what most people I think might call your personal life and how it fits into being a business owner. Could you sort of elucidate maybe a little bit on your thoughts there? You know, you mentioned things like having a prenup and a postnup for your business. (laughs) (laughs) That always gets people's attention. I think a prenup or a postnup is very, very important because the reason for it is somebody, an entrepreneur, can build a very successful business. And if they have a spouse, uh, you know, based on history in our country, the number of marriages has ended up in divorce. At some point, because people change or their needs change, their motives change, whatever, it may be necessary to split apart. And nothing can be more harmful to a small business than a separation of ownership in a difficult situation. So if you get that ironed out first, before you go too far down the road, I think it's a real benefit to you. Nothing is worse than being in a situation where you've got to sell the company for a marital uh, settlement and have to sell it at a low price and at a time when you don't think it's the most appropriate time. So post-nups and prenups, I think, are very, very important. I couldn't agree more. You know, people forget that if if uh, Tom and Chris go into business together, well, Chris is now in business with Tom's wife and Tom now <laughs> right? That's, a, that's an extension that happens a lot. And it's a very unfortunate situation when it happens. The other one, and I'd be curious if you have any particular insight, I've also seen how uh, estate planning and planning for your, you know, I don't know how else to say it, untimely death is also critical if you're going to have partners or investors because how you handle that situation needs to be thought out in advance if, God forbid, it happens. Absolutely. Uh, Key man insurance or key person insurance is a very important aspect of 
when you have partners uh, so that the partners, the surviving partners can afford to buy out the estate, you know, the equity in their entrepreneurial venture from the estate and not have to sell the company or break the company up to satisfy the need. Yeah, it's so critical and yet it doesn't get done very often. Uh, It should be done quite often. Now, if this is too personal, feel free to kick me under the table. But now that we're on the topic of spouses, you are married to an extraordinarily accomplished, incredibly famous, incredibly well-respected woman. Could you tell me a little bit about your wife? (laughs) Everything you said about her is true. (laughs) First of all, she is very accomplished. Being a number one world championship champion in any sport is very, very impressive. But the thing about Monica is you wouldn't know it by knowing her. The people that uh, spend time and are in her company are just can't believe how personable she is, how down-to-earth she is, how helpful she is, and so on and so forth. So uh, having had a little experience in marriages, I could say my association with Monica is probably the best thing that ever happened to me. Oh, that's so great. Um, and uh, I love hearing a little bit about her. Of course, I remember her as a fan and I'm no expert on tennis, but if I'm remembering her career right, I mean, there was a period of time where not only was she the most dominant female tennis player in the world, she was really one of the most dominant athletes in, in any uh, sport, male or female, for quite a long period of time. Yeah, she had uh, eight Grand Slam championships uh, before she was 21 years of age. Uh, she was just a ferocious tennis player, well-respected in her field. And uh, you can't give her enough kudos for what she accomplished. Look, I don't want to embarrass you, but it's obvious. You have had a rock star entrepreneurial and business career. There's just no, uh, no way around it. And your wife has one of the most storied sort of athletic uh, lives or careers in history. And so... You know, you guys are like two rock stars together. What, what's it like being married to each other? Well, when we walk down the street in the United States, or at least in upstate New York and southwest Florida, I'm probably the one recognized first. But in the rest of the world, everybody recognizes Monica before they do me, even though she'll wear hats and sunglasses and so forth, uh, not to be a show off. But uh it's fun, and it's great because people are so nice to both her and me as we walk down any avenue in the United States and and the rest of the world. She's just so well-known in the rest of the world. Nobody knows me outside of the United States. And so, uh, you know, as a man and certainly as a seriously accomplished man, uh, what's it like if you're in you know some parts of the U.S. or if you're in France or you're wherever you are and... Um, you know, your wife's face and name is pretty house, household. And, 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 and to your point, you're not. And yet for most of your life and most of your career, you're sort of, I got to believe you're used to being the rock star in the room. Well, the, the biggest advantage, at least internationally, and I don't mean to sound facetious, but we do get a uh, choice of our tables quite frequently. And we get reservations where probably we should in restaurants. I love it. It sounds fantastic. Another thing I was curious to ask you, it seems at least based on my uh, kind of reading and, and trying to get to know you, that um, philanthropy means a lot to both of you. And you've invested tremendously in education and, and, and a whole bunch of other areas. I'd be curious to hear a little bit about your thinking in that regard. Well, philanthropy has become part of our lives uh, for sure. And uh, when people ask me why I do it, 
I have only a simple answer, and that is because I can. Uh, for example, we've invested in three children's hospitals, uh, one in Rochester, one in Syracuse, New York, and one in Naples or Fort Myers, Florida. Very gratifying, very rewarding. Uh, I get, I don't go a week without getting a letter or a phone call or somebody stopping me on the street telling me what the hospital did for their child. And I'll tell you, when you hear those stories, you, you got to say to yourself, boy, am I glad I did that. I'm, you know, I probably get more credit than I deserve because it's really the doctors and, and the staffs at the hospitals that do the, the work. But it's just very rewarding, very gratifying. And I'm so fortunate that I was able to do it. And of course, I've got to thank Paychecks because if it wasn't for Paychecks, none of this would be happening. That's so interesting that you say. And, you know, we're at a time where at least I hear, and maybe you're even more sensitive to it, you'll tell me, um, you know, we hear some negativity about billionaires and uh, the elite. And um, obviously, we're in an election cycle here in the United States. and, And there's a lot of talk about sort of this whole topic. And, and I remember, remember recently, uh, and I, you know, I've done some homework on your political background uh, and I don't necessarily want to have a political conversation, but I, I did, I don't know if you remember, somebody made the comment about, you know, who would you rather give a billion dollars to Elizabeth Warren or Bill Gates? And, and so I, I guess with all that said, we're in an environment where there's sort of an interesting dialogue about uh, billionaires and the role they play in our culture and our society and our economy. Um, is there anything about that that's on your mind? Yes, Chris, there is. If I were to get into a verbal conversation with Elizabeth Warren, here's what she would hear from me. I went four years without a paycheck. I started my company with $3,000. I worked very hard for a lot of years, and it evolved into something that's very, very important to the business community, our payroll services and our HR services. But it didn't come easy. And yes, I've become a billionaire, but I've also paid over $200 million in taxes in the last 10 years. And I've given away over $300 million to philanthropy. Now, when Elizabeth Warren talks like I'm sort of, sort of louse and I didn't deserve to be as successful as I became, I re- actually really resent it. And I resent her. And knowing how hard entrepreneurs work, and the fact that some of them are really successful, all the kudos in the world should go to those people because they paid a price some way for their success. And to demean them is really hurtful to me. Is that clear enough? <laughs> yeah, it's very clear. And I appreciate your comments and I support them a thousand percent. And what people fail to uh, acknowledge is that some meaningful percentage, and I don't have the number in front of me, of our billionaires are entrepreneurs, guys who started out like you did, or like Sarah Blakely, or like, you know, Bill Gates and Paul Allen. And, you know, everybody likes to shit on Amazon right now. And they forget that that guy started out with nothing and changed the world, right? And and on and on and on. I mean, so many more living in Silicon Valley. It's just, it's so exciting to be here because uh, a huge part of the future gets created within a 50 mile radius. And that's an incredible thing to be around and associated with. And yet, that part of the discussion doesn't show up now, does it? Yeah. Uh, you know, Paychex has 15,000 employees, and some of the other investments that I've made probably equal another 5,000 people that have secure, well-paying jobs. And to have somebody who's lived off the public trough all their life criticize us really irritates me, as you can understand. 
<laughs> yes, well, you and I are in violent agreement there, Tom. Now, I'm also curious, you know, th- talking more maybe about entrepreneurship and some of the newer things you're involved with. You know, I see uh, 3D printing, fiber optics, and, and the internet. Uh, and of course, I would love to, if we have time, to get to um, a little bit about the Buffalo Sabres. But maybe could you walk me through kind of the things that you're interested in from a business and, and investment point of view today? Sure. Well, first of all, we will talk about the Buffalo Sabres. That was one of the best financial investments I made. As you know, they they were in bankruptcy in Buffalo, New York, and nobody was standing up from the Buffalo community that had the resources to acquire them. And being a Rochesterian, about 60 miles down the New York State Thruway, I thought the Sabres were very important to the Buffalo psyche, if you will. So I made the investment in the Buffalo Sabres, and it was a very modest investment compared to what people get for athletic, professional athletic teams. So we made the investment and we turned the uh, situation around. We became a winning team. We went to playoffs. Uh, one year, uh, ESPN rated us the best managed professional sports organization in the country. And um, we were successful and we made money too, which is uh, a lot of people didn't think that was possible. So it turned out to be a very rewarding experience. You turned around a sports franchise in a small market team. And of course, hockey, as much as I love it, being a Montrealer myself, you know, it's not anywhere near as popular as some of the other major sports in the United States. So could you maybe share with me a little time about how you took over the struggling team and turned it around, made it profitable and sort of brought it back to life for the community? Sure. Uh, first of all, we must understand that the Buffalo sports uh, community is very sports oriented and they wanted, they love winners. And so the best thing we could do is owning the sports franchise is try to become a winning team. And we hadn't been for a number of years before that. Well, we made some key trades. We talked to the coaches and general manager as if it was a business, but what the question was, how do we win more games? Uh, let me give you an example. I'm going to pat myself on the back for this one. After I owned the team for about four months, I went up to the coaching staff and I said, guys, how come our shooting percentage is the number 29 or 30 in the league? In other words, how many times do we shoot the puck at the goal and actually score? And we were 29th or 30th in the league. So I said, well, what are you doing about it? And the coach says, well, nothing specific. I said, well, I'm going to do something specific. Why don't you say take an extra half hour of practice every day and do nothing but shoot at the goal? until it builds the player's confidence that they can hit that net and find the open spot. And they took me seriously, and they did start doing that. And by the end of the year, I think we were the, had the third or fourth highest shooting percentage in the league. Now, there was nothing unique about what I said. It just was common sense to me that when you're taking shots at the goal and you're not scoring, your shooters are not as good as they should be. <laughs> so, I mean, that's one practical application that somebody from the business world took into hockey. Uh, the other thing we did that was quite unique was had variable pricing for our tickets. We knew when we were playing Montreal or Toronto, there was tremendous demand for our hockey tickets uh, at our home arena. Well, if we were playing Atlanta or Florida or something like that, something like that, there wasn't the demand. So we affixed the pricing to go with the demand, which was very unique. And that's how we ended up basically selling out almost every game over a number of period of years. Because when the Leafs or the Canadians or maybe the Bruins or some of the traditional teams were coming to town, more people were coming to uh, to the rink. 
Oh, sure. I mean, when we, <laughs> unfortunately, at least that's what I said the first time I saw it, is whenever we played Toronto or Montreal, there was many fans uh, from Toronto and Montreal that there were Sabre fans. And these people drove in from Montreal and Toronto to see the games because they probably didn't have access to tickets in either Montreal or Toronto. Yeah, so why not take advantage, right? And I'm, I'm sure the Montrealers and the Torontonians didn't care. Absolutely. It's probably still cheaper than seeing it at home. <laughs> well, I, I love I love that. And uh, you, you mentioned that it was a great investment. So I'm curious, you know, it's one thing to make an investment, start a company, but, uh, you know, the old know when to hold them and know when to fold them. So what led you to, you know what, as much as you loved it and it sounded like it was a lot of fun for you, how'd you make that decision to sell? Well, that's an interesting question. Yes, we were going along. We were profitable. We were filling the arena. We had fairly successful team when it came to wins and losses. Uh, and uh, a gentleman by the name of Terry Pagula contacted us. And Terry uh, was very interested in owning the hockey team, and he made us an offer. And we said, Terry, thanks for the offer, but uh, we're not ready to sell it at this point. But a few months later, our general manager partner, uh, managing partner, developed a heart condition. And his name is Larry Quinn, and Larry was uh, very dedicated to the Buffalo Sabres. He worked very hard at trying to make them successful and put a lot of self-inflicted pressure on himself. Well, with his heart condition, I decided maybe this is the time to sell the, the, the uh, Sabres. And I knew Terry Pagula would be a good owner because there was nothing Terry Pagula was going to do more than keep the team in Buffalo. And that was uh, a prerequisite. As a matter of fact, we received an offer from a gentleman, I will not mention his name, but uh, he offered us $60 million more than Terry if we would help him move the team. And we decided that would not be a good move because I don't think Larry and I could walk down the streets of Buffalo if we saw the team to somebody that moved it out of Buffalo. Our life would be in danger. So when Terry came along and uh, made us an offer again, we decided to sell the team. And I'll tell you, I was in it for eight years. I had a lot of fun. Didn't especially like working with the media, and that's no secret. I can remember we we are having playoff seasons, and some of the media in Buffalo said we couldn't run a 7-Eleven store. Or one of them called us the Three Stooges. But other than that, it was a great experience, and I enjoyed it immensely. I'm curious, you know, particularly as an entrepreneur, and we hear a lot about greed and money and so forth in our culture. You had an opportunity to make, I mean, most people would say $60 million is a very material amount of money. So you had a chance to make a, a, a meaningful amount of money more by, for yourselves uh, by moving the team. And I, I get the joke about, you know, getting in trouble at downtown Buffalo, but we're all kidding aside, help me with sort of how you make decisions that are not financially oriented. Well, I think, you know, perspective has got a lot to do with it. For example, Larry and another gentleman were co-owners of the company, but they actually owned a fairly small percentage compared to myself. So most of that $60 million would have accrued to me. But to keep it in perspective, it wasn't that important to me. What was more important is that the Buffalo Savers get an owner that's going to be dedicated to the Buffalo market and work very hard to make that team successful in Buffalo. Now, Larry and, and Dan, the other gentleman, I think probably maybe – was a little hesitant about it, us not taking that offer. But I think in the end, they thought it was the best thing. 
So that's what we did. I love it. Now, maybe a little bit about some of the other uh, newer investments and in, in entrepreneurial endeavors you're, you're into right now. I'd, I'd love to hear sort of um, where you're placing bets and trying to build new, new technology and new companies. Yeah, I could mention a, a one or two of them if you'd like. Uh, first of all, I'm invested in a company called Greenlight. I'm the majority shareholder in it. And Greenlight provides internet service in the Rochester, New York metropolitan area. We service, I think, almost 40,000 households. The product is well accepted. It's reasonably priced and it's high quality. Well, we just made the decision recently to go into the Buffalo market. Uh, we held a press conference just a few weeks ago, and the press conference was on a Tuesday morning. By Sunday afternoon, just from the press conference, we had 6,000 people from Buffalo sign up for the service. <laughs> now we're not ready to produce it yet. That's a hell of a press conference, Tom. Yeah, I know, and I wish I could do more of those. But uh, so obviously the market is in uh, demand there for a good internet service, and we think we're going to provide it. Also invested in a company that uh, is providing, do you know what 3D printing is? Yeah, of course. 3D printing is the manufacturer of products uh, using a particular type of process. And in that process, when a product is made, for example, uh, let's say a case for a cell phone, if they use 3D printing to manufacture that case, there's a certain amount of residue that has to be cleaned off the, pro the finished product. And we developed a company I've invested in, developed a product that does the cleansing and the cleaning of that manufactured product. Now, we're just getting underway with it, but we think it has a great future. That's a little bit of a technology bet for me. I generally like businesses that have recurring revenue, such as internet service or payroll processing, things like that. So those are two of the most recent things I've gotten involved in. And what is it about those businesses that attracts you to them? Well, with uh, the internet service, it's recurring revenue. You know, once you build the customer base and keep adding to it and maintaining a good quality product, it can be very profitable. And incremental revenue is also much more profitable uh, than in standard other businesses. The uniqueness of the 3D printing product is what got my attention there. It certainly seems to be a product that's uh, or a service that's going to be very much in demand. Fascinating. All right, Tom, well, is there anything else you want to touch on before we wrap? I just hope that uh, people that are interested in owning and operating a business take the time and to read the book. I think it could be helpful to almost anybody. I've had a lot of people come up to me that have read the book already and said, gee, I wish I read this 20 years ago. Uh, and that makes me feel good that there's content in there that's important to people. Well, I want to thank you for taking the time to write it. I think it's a very important thing to do, you know, when when you've achieved the level of kind of insight and success that you have. And so I think you've written a great book, and I really appreciate this time with you, Tom. All right. Thanks a lot, Chris. Well, there he is, Tom Golisano. I sure hope you enjoyed him as much as I did. What an amazing guy. And I also want to remind you, coming very soon, our special two-part series with the real DEA Narcos. Make sure you're subscribed because you are not going to want to miss a second of it. All right. We would like to thank Tom Golisano and his brand new book, Built Not Born, a self-made millionaire's um, no-nonsense guide for entrepreneurs. My good friends at nonprofitonelifefullylived.org, helping you dream plan and live your best life. Check them out at onelifefullylive.org. I also want to remind you about my uh, marketing podcast, Lockhead on Marketing. 
And what makes it different is it's one of the few marketing podcasts on strategy and mindset. Most episodes, I know this might be hard to believe, are short (laughs) and fairly to the point. And uh, we were lucky enough to make number one in marketing, number one in business on Apple Podcasts. So check out Lockhead on Marketing. Also, my dear friend, Dushka Zapata and her best-selling book, How to Be Ferociously Happy and Other Essays. Um, a podcast I love with Jamie J, Culture Eats Strategy. Check it out. Another podcast I love, Grumpy Old Geeks with my friends Jason DeFilippo and Brian Schulmeister. Check them out. Also check out GrowWire.com. It's what legendary entrepreneurial people are reading today, GrowWire.com. My friends at Crash.co want to help you crash your career and catapult your uh, uh, career and your job search to a whole new level. Check out Crash.co slash different. That's Crash.co slash different today. And if you're in Australia, uh, check out my buddies at RapidMedia.com.au. Legendary marketing, media, and communications in Australia. RapidMedia.com.au. All right, I need to remind you that today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes, and this podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. And we deeply, deeply appreciate it when you tell your friends about this podcast and you share it on social media. Thank you so much. Um, be nice to your mother. Support your local entrepreneurs. Don't forget to buy John's Crazy Socks. Tell two people you love about two podcasts you love. Remember, don't be lame. Get out of the passing lane. Listen to the Tragically Hip. Only by Pastor Rage Raged? <laughs> Pastor Raised Free Range Eggs. Remember, chickens are people too. Thank you, Candy Dandy. I love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Our deepest apologies today go to uh, Richard C. Kelly, Chairman of P- Pacific Gas and Electric. Sorry, Dick, we just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Uh, thank you so much for investing part of your life with me. Stay legendary. And until we're together again, Follow your difference.